Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. This morning we are in Genesis 35 and 36. You can find those chapters starting on page uh, 22 or 29, depends on which Bible you pick up. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you, you need one or you, you like the one that you're looking at, please, please take that home when you consider it a gift from Crosspoint to you. Glad you're here. Uh, please do pull out a Bible, by the way. We're, we're going to be flying through 35 and 36, and there are several passages in the, in the New Testament that I'd like to highlight as well. So it, it would help you a lot to be familiar with these passages, to know where they are, and to, to read along with me. Um, let me pray for us, and, and then we'll, we'll get into it. We've got a lot to cover. Father, uh, I've been so encouraged by all the, the songs that we have sung this morning, the scriptures that have been read and brought to mind. I, uh, I know that you are sovereign and you orchestrate all these things. And the reality is, is that in, in all things, you, you long and desire to be worshiped, to receive worship from us. And you've made it so clear. We, we can't turn to a page in scripture where this need that we have to worship you is, is made clear. We can't turn to a page in scripture where you don't give us some indication, some direction on how we can find joy in you and, and truly worship you by delighting in you. It's throughout your word. It's no surprise then that as we read your word, we would find it uh, again and again. So I pray that as we study Genesis, as we look here at the, the close of Jacob's time in the spotlight, that that you would help us to think, that you would help us to see clearly what it is to worship you, even in this life filled as it is with suffering and sin. Help us to worship you. Give us, give us hope in Jesus. Propel us to truly worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all right. We're in Genesis 35, 36. Now, if you, if you read ahead, and I know you all did, if you read ahead, then you notice that chapter 36 is, by and large, overwhelmingly genealogy. And you may have panicked. Maybe you're not even here right now because you were so concerned that we were going to spend our whole time together reading horribly mispronounceable names. That's not the case. 35 has a lot to say to us, but 36 has some points that I'd like to draw from it as well. So our focus will be on chapter 35, and then I'm going to highlight a few verses, a few key things in 36, and we'll see what that has to say to us. So the, the background, where are we at in Genesis? We've been doing this for a long time. Last week, we were in chapter 34, which was uh, certainly in the, scale, in the grand scheme of what's happening in Genesis, a bit of a downer. Uh, there, there is just so much to discuss, and Brad did a great job last week uh, of, of handling uh, the issues that take place there with uh, sensitivity and the gravity, I think, that they're due. Uh, but I think we can summarize 34, and we can summarize practically all of Genesis with, with this, that, that Jacob's family, God's people, they, despite the fact that they are God's chosen people, are oftentimes at the cutting edge of what it means to offend God. Uh, they're, they're finding new ways to offend him. So that, so that last week even, they, they took the covenant sign that God had given them, circumcision, and they used it as a means of disabling their enemies so that they could come in and slaughter them all. Innocent, guilty alike, men, women, children, their whole lives absolutely shattered because of the use uh, of this covenant sign. It'd be similar to, I don't know, poisoning the communion elements and, and inviting a friend to church and really encouraging him to take part in communion at the end of the service. 
Or, or it'd be like watching me take my wedding band off and go to a pawn shop and take the money for that to hire an assassin. It, it, it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's horrible. It completely negates the meaning of what is there. And, and certainly we could say then that what takes place in chapter 34 from the perspective of Simeon and Levi, the, the sons who go out in vengeance and rage, we could say that, that the way they went about it and what they did was offensive to God. Jacob's family is jacked up. They're messed up. Now, uh, another thing we maybe aren't quite as familiar with, but just to give you a, a big picture of Genesis is this, that as we go through Genesis, we, we've seen the Bible zoom in on particular characters. These are real historical figures, I know that, but let's call them characters. So, so we start out, we, we look at Adam and Eve, and, and things trail off from them. Then we look at Noah and his family, and it trails off. Then we got to look at Abraham. He's the guy that God calls out of paganism to worship him, and, and then Abraham trails off, and then we look at Abraham's son, Isaac, and that trails off, and now here we are at Jacob, and this chapter, chapter 35, is really the last that we hear of Jacob. This is the last time we really focus on Jacob himself. Everything beyond this is about his family, about his sons. Now, if, if this is the last that we really get to see of Jacob, though we hear from him occasionally throughout the rest of Genesis, if this is the last we really get to focus on him and on his heart and what's going on in his life as it relates to his covenant with God, then we should be concerned because 34 is the last we heard of Jacob. The slaughter that his family brings about in a neighboring city and then the fact that he is surrounded by enemies as a result. Jacob's story is in need of a happy ending. It, it is in need of a turnaround. Something has to take place that causes us to say, okay, the guy that Israel is named after, the nation, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, the name that they take upon themselves is Israel. 34 is not exactly justification for that. So what happens that, that makes that seem legitimate? Well, we know that Jacob's family tree is incomplete. He, he's supposed to have 12 sons. There are 12 tribes of Israel. He's only got 11. So there's one way in which his story needs to be tied together. And, and then there's an unfulfilled vow, which we find in Genesis 28, 18 through 22. We read this a couple weeks ago. Let me read it to you again to refresh your memory. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set up a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, so Jacob made this vow in chapter 28. Here we are in chapter 35. That vow, it really hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, there have been some signs of promise. We, we saw uh, in Genesis 33, verse 20 especially, that before chapter 34 and all those events, Jacob bought some land and he he set on that piece of land an altar. And he names that altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So clearly, Jacob is, he is trending, if we will, toward worshiping the one true God as his God, like he said he would do in chapter 28. Here he is in chapter 33, giving us a glimpse of what that'll look like. All right. He, he's not worshiping just generic God. He's not worshiping God among many gods. He's worshiping the, the God of Israel, the one who spoke to him in chapter 28, the one who reveals himself to him throughout Genesis. We get, we get some signs of promise, but that, that vow is still, it's not fully fulfilled. More has to happen. The question then we, that we ask ourselves is, has Jacob really bought in? Is, is, he, is, he, is he all in? Or does he have some sort of plan B? What's, what's at stake here? What's going on? Is Jacob really worshiping the Lord, the God, the one true God, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac? So our text takes us to Genesis 35. I'm going to read that, and I'm going to highlight a few verses from chapter 36, 
and, uh, and we'll, we'll see where this takes us. God said to Jacob, this is verse 1, chapter 35, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise. And go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. That's a big deal. You remember earlier, Jacob's wife Rachel had stolen a bunch of idols from her father. It almost resulted in her death and the utter ruin of Jacob's family line. So there are some changes. There are things happening here. He, he removes these idols. Verse 5, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. If you recall, he's surrounded by enemies. Everyone around them wants him and his family dead. Verse 5 is important. Verse 6, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there a God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, that sounds familiar. We've seen this already in the text. God has already, remember, he wrestled with the angel, and, and the Lord changed his name to Israel then. This is a way of, I think, confirming that, shoring it up. And, and solidifying everything, because as you see, Jacob, he's, he's, he's moving, he's going all in. God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben, his son, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. 
And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Rule, Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is also known as Edom, and that becomes the region that he would dwell in. Verse 15, these are the chiefs of the sons of Israel. And and it goes on to list many mighty leaders within his family and, and within the tribes of Esau. And then verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And then finally, chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. I I look at chapter 36 and 37 merely as a way to show that things are progressing well for Esau. His family is exploding. From his line come kings, powerful men who conquer a territory that's not even theirs. They take it over, and they have to take it over because they have so much wealth. They have so much stuff they need space for it, and they don't want to deal with fighting for it with Jacob. So, so he moves everything. It takes over a place, and his trajectory seems to be on the rise. And we have Jacob, who is dwelling in the land of Canaan where his fathers were and has 12 sons. We'll, we'll get to that. So what, what's the big idea here in this chapter, these chapters? What, what do I at least see that maybe we'll focus on this morning? We worship rightly. We worship rightly in this life when we put our hope in the one true God and in his promises. All right, We worship rightly in this life when we put our hope in the one true God and his promises, which in a sense are kind of an extension of who he is. First of all, just to clarify, everyone worships. Everyone, I say we worship rightly because I'm assuming we're all going to worship one way or another. Everyone worships. Something, someone. This is demonstrated in 35, 2 through 4. Jacob said to his household, put away the foreign gods, change your clothes, purify yourselves, let us arise and go to Bethel that I may build an altar to God. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and he hid them under a tree. He He buried them. He got rid of them. Everyone worships. And and we look at this and we think, oh, you know, we talk about idols and how, well, none of us worship wooden or metal or golden idols of some sort. Today, we don't have those. We're going to have to be a little more nuanced here. Idols can come in many forms. This isn't the point. I'm not going to dwell here, but if you, if you do want to think more deeply about what idols look like and, and how they work in our lives and how we do really have functional idols, things that function for us as saviors from whatever functions for us as hell, um, you, you would do well to read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. It's, it's in the resource room here. Uh, but I'd encourage you to read that. It's all about idolatry. But, but just some ideas here that I think relate. John Calvin said this really well, the human mind or the human heart is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. I I love that language. Another translation has a a factory. It's an idol factory. And he's right. Our hearts are constantly geared toward finding something to latch onto and worship. Money, sex, power, just being liked by people, pleasing people, all these things, they they dictate what we do. They, they, they determine what our joy is. We all have idols. It's just the state of the human heart after the fall. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, he, he even goes so far as to say that the first commandment, you know, uh, worship God alone, have no other gods before him, he argues that that first commandment, if you, if you want to break any others, you have to break that one first. And he's right. If, if God, if, if you worship money as your God, then stealing will become something that you are inclined to do. Or, or if you worship sex, then adultery will be one of the commandments that you break. And, and I think he gets at the heart of this idea as well, that, that idols are subtle. 
And they're not always people. Sometimes they're just concepts. But they're things that take our hearts and pull them away from the one true God and cause us to serve them in ways that are opposed to the commandments of God. Are there idols in your camp? Is the, is the question I think that I, I, would, I would ask you and I would draw from this. We, we see Jacob, he's got these idols in his camp. And it's really encouraging, isn't it, that he's finally getting these things out of here? He's going throughout and telling everyone to remove these idols, to remove them. But if we're talking about worship and God has called him to worship him in a particular way, these things cannot coexist. They, they must be destroyed. They must be removed. If you're holding on to something or if there is something that dictates your actions that is not God and his word, then you have an idol. Your worship of God is tainted, if you can call it worship at all. And it's not just that we have idols. Sometimes we have a misperception of who God is, and so then we worship a false idea of God. Well, my God would never be wrathful. My God would never punish sin. He's all-loving. That's the God I worship. Well, that's a false God. That, that's not the God we find in the Bible. Your worship of that God will draw you no closer to the one true God who, yes, does love, but also is wrathful against sin and because of his love must punish sin. I, just, I challenge you to think this through. Don't assume that as we talk about worshiping God that you've got that down pat. You've got that figured out. You may have lingering idols and idolatrous desires in your own heart. Consider that. Search your heart for that. The one true God is, is then our, our option. There, there's idols and, and then there's the one true God. There's nothing else that we can really worship and, and there's really no other alternative. We are all worshipers of something. So there is one true God and, and he's to be worshipped rightly. And I think Jacob gives us a great example of this. He worships God with an obedient heart. God, in verse 1, tells him to make an altar, and that's exactly what Jacob does. And it's interesting because in the past, in, in chapter 28, when he made his vow to God and at this very same place, he set up a pillar, not an altar. He poured oil on it. Now, Jacob didn't have Deuteronomy. He didn't have the Old Testament. He couldn't have looked ahead and seen that God prefers this means of worship to that. But, but it's an incredible grace that God allows that to, to happen and and he, he allows it, and then he continues to protect Jacob. But here, God is calling him to make an altar. Build an altar. There's a very specific condition here that God expects of Jacob when it comes to worshiping him. And Jacob obeys. Jacob does what God says, and he, he worships him rightly. And so he worships with an obedient heart. Verse 14 also shows where he does set up a pillar later. Uh, he, he, he pours out on this pillar a drink offering. What is that? What's a drink offering? Well, it, it's similar, I think, in nature to what we read about in Philippians 2.14, where Paul says that he's offered his life on the sacrifice of those that he loves, the Philippians, as a drink offering. He's, he's pouring himself out. He's giving himself entirely to the work of the gospel. And likewise, Jacob here, by pouring out this drink offering, it, it shows that he is, he is pouring himself out, that he is giving himself entirely over to God, the God of Israel. He's obedient. He follows God's commands. He obeys God's words, and lest we think that obedience is somehow incompatible with faith, that, well, I'm saved by grace through faith, not by my works, we should know that that faith works itself out through us in certain ways. It shows itself in signs and in fruit, in evidence of faith. This is my last Calvin quote, but he says this, although God is worshiped with the mind an external confession is the inseparable companion of faith. James, the letter that James writes, is all about this idea that faith without works is dead. It's not to say that we are saved by what we do, but it is to say that faith in the one true God leads us to live and act in a certain way, and it causes us to obey him, to do what he says, to obey his word. Jacob worships with an obedient heart. He worships with an undivided heart. Verse 2, put away the foreign gods among you. That's what Jacob says to his camp. And then in verse 4, we see that Jacob hides them. 
He gets rid of them. He removes them. He, he doesn't save them for later. He, he puts them under this tree and he walks away. They are gone. An undivided heart. You're familiar with the statement from the New Testament, you can't worship God in money. You can't worship God in anything else. So just because you say, well, I, I'm worshiping God, I, I, I'm, I'm here on Sunday morning, I'm singing his praises, I'm reading his word, but are you worshiping him on Monday through Saturday? Who, who's your God then? What, what functions as your Savior then? You cannot have both. You cannot worship God and whatever else dictates your life. You can't. And, and I would challenge you to, to, to think about that. What, are, are, are you trying to hold on to two things? Are you trying to claim that you worship God, that you follow him, but also holding on to idols and desires that, that determine how you live and what you do, especially if they're contrary to who God has revealed himself to be? Jacob worships with a pure heart. An undivided heart. He, he's, he's not looking at two places at once to, to find direction. But he's also worshiping with a pure heart. Um, verse 2, purify yourselves and change your garments. Again, that's, a, that's an outward sign of something going on inwardly, which is to say that Jacob and his camp, they, they, are, they are at least openly acknowledging that they desire to turn from sin to turn toward holiness and righteousness like the God that they claim to worship. And, and we too are called to turn from sin and, and, and to turn from all that offends God's holiness, to, to remove these things from us, to let go of these hindrances. Romans thirteen fourteen says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what it means to purify ourselves, to make no provision, not, not even a hint of, of sinfulness, not even a hint of disobedience, to, to even hate talking about it, because the idea of disobeying God and offending him is, is so repulsive to you. Don't make any provision for the flesh. The question I, I, I suppose that, that comes to my mind is, do we worship God this way? Uh, do we worship him with, with an obedient heart, with an undivided heart, with a pure heart? Is that how, how we can characterize our hearts as we worship the Lord? And, and we worship the Lord with our lives. Romans 12, 1, uh, it says, I appeal, Paul appeals to the Romans saying, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. Yes, we're called to worship God with our lives, with what we do, where we work, how we interact with one another, how our families work. Uh, we're called to worship God that way. But, but I think sometimes we, we focus so much on that that we don't really get down into the nitty-gritty, into the specifics of what that actually looks like. And, and to be honest, worship really technically literally is a, it's an act. It's a thing that we do. It's not just a defining characteristic of all, all of life, which, yes, Romans is right, it is. But on some level, worship is something that we are called to do in the moment, right here on a Sunday morning, called to worship the Lord. Psalm 100, especially verse 4, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. We are called to worship the Lord corporately together on Sunday morning with one another. We, we are called to do this, to sing his praise. All of this may seem daunting, an undivided heart, a, a pure heart, perfectly obedient. That seems, that, that seems almost impossible. I, I hope you sense that because it is. Uh, we, we will never do this perfectly. Which is why we need God's grace. We need him to act in our hearts and in our lives to bring this about, to elicit from us faith and worship. 
You saw in verse 5 how God protects Jacob all the way to Bethel where God told him to go so that he would worship him. God leverages Jacob's fear of his enemies to bring about prompt obedience. He leverages the fear of himself and and Jacob's enemies to cause them to hold back, to allow Jacob to have safe passage. The grace of God elicits worship from even the most unworthy people like me and like you. So don't feel daunted by this. Trust in the Lord. Seek him. Ask him to bring this about in you. To bring it about. Now, we can say safely that, that Jacob has gone all in worshiping the one true God. Um, and this is striking when you consider the larger context of this chapter and also of, of, of his whole narrative found in Genesis. It's, it's really remarkable. Because his, his life is filled with reasons for him to be afraid. Fears that, that should surely pull him away, cause him to hide his head in the ground. And yet he worships. How do these things coincide? Well, my, my second point then, I guess, is that everyone has fears like this, which appear at odds, on the surface at least, with worship. These fears come from different places. Uh, it, handily, they are alliterative in the sense they all start with S, right? Sin, sorrow, suffering. We see these things throughout this chapter, and you would expect these things to prevent Jacob from worshiping God freely and rightly, and yet, yet he worships. Now, to give you some examples, uh, just some reminders, I, I think these these things that we read about, they're, they're not just generic sort of, I'm afraid of that, but I think at root they are so dreadful because they remind us of our chief dread. The chief thing that we most fear and dread and hate, which is condemnation from God himself. Condemnation for sin. I think in, in all these things that I'm about to show you, we see examples of, of that, that same inner turmoil that we all face to some degree or another. In, in chapter 28, Esau, his vengeance against Jacob. Well, Esau is certainly sinful, but we also know that that was brought about by Jacob's own sin against Esau. It's not true of every sin that people commit against us, but it, it's just to say that, that this life is fraught with sin and, and reminders of the condemnation we fear for sin. Dinah, the daughter of Jacob in chapter 34, which we read last week, she, she is raped not because of anything she, she's done necessarily, but, but simply because this world is wicked and fallen and sinful. And Simeon and Levi, Jacob's sons, they should take up the mantle of their father to, to bring about God's honor among the nations, but instead they use God's covenant sign and slaughter all the people related to those responsible for their sister's rape. Now, that brutal vengeance... It brings about the, the desire in, in Jacob's enemies for further vengeance. The cycle of hating and being hated and bringing about destruction, it, it continues. But then we see in verse 8 uh, a change in, in tone. Deborah, Rachel, uh, Rachel's nurse, Rachel is Jacob's mother. We don't really know how Deborah ends up in Jacob's camp. It's speculated that, that Rachel sent Deborah to Jacob just a family friend and someone for him to take care of and watch over when Rachel is gone. But, but Deborah is a very close family friend, like a, like a mother or a grandmother to, to Jacob. And, and she dies, which is interesting. I mean, we don't really know much of anything about her. But, but Genesis makes a point to say that she dies. And not only that, but that it wrecks Jacob. He names, he names a tree after what took place there, calling it the oak of weeping. There is sorrow that, that fills Jacob's life. We see Reuben and Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, uh, engage in an incestuous power play of sorts. Where Reuben, the firstborn, it's as if he's asserting his leadership in the family by uh, sleeping with Jacob's own wife. 
It's sinful, it's, it's horrible, and it's even more so because of what it says about Reuben's love for his father. So it's a lot like the story of the prodigal son. Give me my inheritance now. I'm, I'm done with you. Um, it should cause us to, to tense up and to think, this, 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 this isn't right. Nothing about this is right. Rachel's sorrowful death in childbirth, found in verses 17 and 18, she names her son, son of sorrow, because she knows she's dying even as she's giving birth to him. Can you imagine walking the rest of your life with that name? It's not a joke. It's a constant reminder of pain and suffering. In verse 29, Jacob's father Isaac dies. Obviously, that's significant. And then beyond this, even in chapter 37, we see one of Jacob's own sons, his favorite son, Joseph, kidnapped, presumed dead, and sent off into a foreign land away from his family. It Jacob absolutely falls apart. The point here is that in all of this, Jacob's life is is filled with suffering and sin and its effects. And and that, we would expect, should cause Jacob to turn from worshiping God. Should cause him to at least be more preoccupied with that than taking the time to build an altar and travel a long distance to worship God. God, nothing about his life has changed. And maybe some of you are yourselves beset right now with fears on all sides, and you are desperately seeking escape. I don't have time to sit here and think about how to praise God. You don't know how my life is falling apart. And some of it is my fault maybe, but I can point to a lot of ways in which it is not my fault at all. I can, I can put blame on plenty other people, and I'm having to deal with this, and you're telling me to worship God? You're telling me to, to put my trust in him and, and to follow him and to love and serve him? Turn to Jesus, because salvation is found in him alone. And as I said, if all of these things are ultimately a reminder of the condemnation, the just condemnation we all feel for sin, Jesus is the only solution then. And he reframes everything. Romans 8, I'm going to skip around here, but starting in verse 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Not, now, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right? I don't know what that does for you, but for me, it reshapes everything. It redefines what suffering and fear look like. And more importantly than that, it wipes out any fear of condemnation for sin because I trust in Jesus. You should do the same. Why don't you? You should do the same. Worship Jesus. Put your hope in him. The world will tell you you should minimize sin. That is a deadly placebo. You are lying to yourself. The world will say that you should minimize suffering and sorrow as if it doesn't exist. And that is silly and unrealistic. Don't be blind. Don't willfully ignore what is going on around you. Pain and suffering are real. They're not illusions. They're not to be minimized. 
And I'm not saying that you should embrace them. I'm saying you should embrace Jesus. I'm not saying don't minimize that. I'm saying do magnify Jesus. Turn to him. God, in his love, sent Jesus to suffer in our place, to endure our condemnation, which did not overwhelm him. They were the very reason that he came, so that he might glorify his Father and cause us to do the same. So in this sense, hope in Christ is like a bridge from fear to worship. This juxtaposition of Fear and worship that we would seem, think would be at odds is overcome because of hope in Christ. If you are hoping in Jesus, fear is no longer an end in itself, but rather a means to a greater end of worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Hope in Christ. Hope is what Jacob needed to complete his journey to worship God. It's what we need if we are to worship God in the midst of this life, filled with trials as it is. It's confident hope in God. Verse 3, I love the way Jacob puts this. He, he says, let's make an altar to the God who answers me. Not the God who answered him in the past without hope for the future, as if God needs to be repaid for what he has done, but I don't anticipate anything further coming from him unless he gets that. No. Not the God who might answer me in the day of my distress. I'm just going to be optimistic about this and you go all or nothing. No, the God who answers me. There's a confidence there that Jacob has that we haven't seen in his life up until this point. And think what he's been through and think what he's about to endure. For him to say that is incredibly full of faith. It's incredibly full of confident hope in God. Hebrews 10:23 says, "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering." Why? Because he who promised is faithful. My God is faithful. In Jesus, he is faithful. Titus 2, 11 through 14, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." When we put our hope in Christ, we are putting our hope in something sure, someone sure and faithful. And we know this not just because of his nature, though that would be enough, but because our, our, our confidence and our hope is, is grounded in our experience of past grace. You see it in Jacob's life. Verse 3, God has been with me wherever I have gone. The God who answers me is the same one who has followed me to this point. <laughs> followed me. The same one who's led me to this point. The same one who's brought me through every trial and circumstance I have faced in my entire life. My own sin, the sins of others. Remember, Jacob's name was once deceiver. Now it is God. Now it is Israel. The, he's named after God. The God who hears him. The God who speaks to him. The God who calls him. Walking through that has brought him out the other side. It, if you think about even the geography of what is taking place here, God is directing Jacob once again to Bethel. Bethel. And, and, and that's where God had spoken to him before. And what were the circumstances then? Well, if you recall, he was on the run from his brother Esau for stealing his birthright, expecting to be murdered in his sleep. The Lord appeared to him then. The Lord appears to him now saying, go back to that place. I want you to remember what I did for you. Not because I'm lording it over you, but because I want you to know who I am and that you can trust me and you can know and count on my faithfulness to you. Not anything you've done, but, but all my faithfulness and love for you. If you, if you want to know that God loves you, you, you should look to the cross. You may wonder, well, that's not very specific. It's not, doesn't have my name written all over it. it. 
doesn't have to. The Lord sent his own son to die on the cross, bearing his wrath for sin and, and our sin, <laughs> bearing it on himself, absorbing God's punishment. And this is true even as trials continue. We, we are still called to hope in Christ, and this hope carries us through ongoing trial and, and suffering. This is why the prosperity gospel is such a joke. The idea that God wants nothing more for us than health, wealth, and happiness in this life. Jacob would disagree. Jesus would disagree. It makes a mockery of putting our hope in God. It has nothing to do with Christ, who is the foundation for our hope. And so trials remain, though we ourselves are changed. And we are changed by seeing, the, seeing everything else with gospel lenses. I mentioned that Jacob's son, Benjamin, was originally named son of sorrow. But Jacob changes his name so that it means son of my right hand. There's hope in that. He sees things differently. His wife has just died, and he still cannot bring himself to say that this is the son of sorrow. It's a son of prominence, a son of honor. He sees things differently through the grace of God. Even Isaac's death found at the end of this chapter, which you would expect to be very heartbreaking for Jacob, we know that ultimately this results in Jacob receiving his own inheritance. In chapter 36, the upward trajectory of Esau and how great things seem to be going for him Esau isn't the chosen son. And if that's happening to him, what can we expect will happen for Jacob? He sees big picture. He sees beyond what's happening here and now. This is what enables him to worship the Lord rightly. And, and it's likewise what should enable us to worship God even now on this Sunday morning. Is your aim to honor and acknowledge God wherever you go, whatever you do? If it's not, your hope might be misplaced. You, you may be placing your hope in something or someone else. So perhaps you don't worship zealously, let's say, at church this morning, right now. The actual act of worship. Perhaps you're not worshiping with zeal here. Perhaps it's because of your circumstances, or maybe you're hungry, or maybe someone's texting you. I don't know, but... Maybe you're not undivided and obedient and pure of heart in this room as we sing. Perhaps you, you don't want to honor or acknowledge God at your home when you're in prayer or in your yard or in the office or in your car or wherever because your perception of this life isn't grounded in a gospel-prompted sense of hopeful expectation. God's people have nowhere to go but up through Jesus. This isn't a matter of conjuring up self-esteem or optimism. It's a matter of preaching the gospel to yourself and to others. Because Jesus is the God who answers. He's God's, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Though sin, suffering, and sorrow are intermingled with worship our whole lives. It's like a mustard seed. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven like a mustard seed. He says it starts out really small, but then it becomes a magnificent tree that can hold birds and all sorts of creatures from, from a microscopic seed. We're in microscopic seed stage. <laughs> Consider what is to come. And know this, that one day hope itself will no longer be a thing. Have you ever thought about that? 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says that the greatest things are faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And I think in part the reason why Paul says that is because love continues, whereas hope at one point ceases. Because at one point you see God face to face. At one point, you're no longer hoping to get through anything. You are there. At one point, you are with him and, and you know him. 
There is fullness of joy in his presence. There's no waiting room. So, worshiping God rightly in Christ reframes everything we experience as God brings us full circle through joy and sorrow, life and death, worship and even sin until we are perfectly and finally made like him in his presence. The band, you guys can come on up. Um, I want to pray for us in a minute. And first, I'd like to read a bit of 1 Peter. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1 Peter 1, chapter, verse 3 through 9. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm going to pray for us, and after I do that, we'll sing some songs, and you are welcome to respond in uh, worship through communion as well. Um, if you're not a believer, it doesn't make sense for you to participate in that. I encourage you not to participate in communion if you do not actually trust in Jesus. That's what the body and bread are represented in the blood and the juice, and the, not the blood, the bread and the juice there. But I, I, want, I want us to worship him. Let's worship him together right now. Because of the hope that is found in him that we find nowhere else. Let's pray. Father, uh, you, are, you are worthy. You are worthy to be worshiped and praised. We know that there is a right way to worship you that you have called us to, which means that there is a wrong way worship you. We know that it is by your grace then that we come before you with obedience, that we can come before you in purity of heart, that we can come before you with undivided attention and affection. Help us to kill our idols, to bury them turn toward you in faithful obedience not not to earn your favor but in your grace with joyful hopeful expectation so that even as we endure pain and suffering our whole lives even as we ourselves wrestle with the sin that dwells so close to us we would find comfort that we would find forgiveness we would find salvation in Jesus alone. Help us to turn from our sin and to turn toward you, even now as we worship you. Help us to do so in Jesus' name.